January, February 91, nothing had worked out. I had no money. I had no land. Um, you know, I felt like all I could do was the schoolwork. There wasn't really much else that I could do. And I could do it with research. But why do research if you're not going to do anything with it? Welcome to Indian Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Shwet Nag. On today's episode, we have Dr. Debra Tyagarajan, who is the founding member and president of Dakshinachitra Museum in Chennai. Dr. Debra started Dakshinachitra in 1996 in an effort to preserve some incredible specimens of traditional Indian houses. Today, it is a well-known heritage center that acts to preserve and create interest in various facets of Indian culture, such as art and architectural heritage, craft, music, and dance. So let's talk to Dr. Debra Tyagarajan. Could you tell us about your childhood and education background? Uh, well, I'm from the U.S. I was born outside of Philadelphia, and from age 13 onwards, we returned to Philadelphia. But in between, we moved quite a bit, and I spent two years in Canada, which brought me in contact with multi multicultural and, and bilingual country. And I think that got me started. And I went to a, a women's college and majored in German literature and minored in French. I spent over three years in Europe at uh, German universities and French universities. And then I worked at the ILO in Geneva, Switzerland, editing uh, reports that were coming out of India and Pakistan. And that was the first time I'd really, you know, confronted India as a country before I had not even thought about it. And uh, after that, I went back and did a master's degree in international development education in the U.S. and met my husband, who was also a fellow student. He was from Madre, India. And you asked me why I moved to India. That's very much why I moved to India. Um, <laughs> he was at that time, he was an assistant professor at the University of Rochester in organizational psychology. And I uh, further studied uh, anthropology there. And then we moved to India. Did getting married into a Chetiar family give you an advantage in any way, especially with arts? I, I think it really did. I, I should tell you, it took my poor, it was it was quite a shock to my poor in-laws. It took them seven years to actually accept that they had an American daughter-in-law. But um, no, I found, I found it was definitely an advantage to be married into a very cohesive, conservative Indian family gave me a lot of insights into India and their understanding of the arts and culture. And of course, the Chetiar community itself has been very um, in the forefront of arts. They, Because they worked uh, abroad, they had an understanding of the culture of their own country. I think that happens when you go out and you come back. And so they patronized all the crafts and uh, that, that was used on their houses and they renovated many temples. So they really gave a Philip to craftspeople who were languishing because there was no patronage beside the Chetiars at that time. So I think it gave me it gave me an insight into what you can do with craft and how you can you you can use it architecturally in so many different ways. And the Chetiar community is quite a fascinating community anyway. <laughs> you start Madras Craft Foundation in 1984. What was the motivation behind this? I've, I've always been interested in in uh, uh, museums. When I was in Paris, I spent about six months in Paris. I was in the Louvre at least twice a week. Back then, there weren't many crowds. And, uh, you know, I, wherever I go, I've always gone to museums. 
So it's it's always been a, a love. So when I think of art, I think of museums, basically. And uh, yeah, I did take art courses also in college. But um, no, I think the, the inspiration for the, for the museum came from my field work because I worked for over three years in villages in the western part of uh, Tamil Nadu. I was uh, worked as an anthropologist um, in the Tamil Nadu Nutrition Project. So I was in villages six days a week. And um, there, you know, I saw the architecture, the folk performing arts, the festivals, the um, crafts, and it was a huge, a lot of weaving, of uh, handloom weaving in that area. And so I could also see that they they really felt that uh, there was no future for what they were doing, particularly the craftspeople and the weavers. And uh, I've, you know, I think coming from outside, you can see that, that the tempo of change much more easily than someone who has always, you know, it just assumes it's always going to be there. And so I, 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 I really felt that somebody should do something to preserve the culture. And I have to say that it was my rural experience that made me love India. I mean, I fell in love with India then and very humbled by the tremendous generosity of villagers and that struggle that women had. I was interviewing women. I wasn't interviewing men as much as women. But uh, so that that gave me the grounding on which to to set up a museum, which really uses them, the craftspeople and the folk performing artists as, as stakeholders, as well as the, the patis, the, uh, um, you know, the, the architects, the, the carpenters and architects. So that, that, I would say, was one of the major inspirations. The second one was that I was the convener of INTAC. INTAC is the Indian National Trust for Art and Cultural Heritage. And we were trying to get a, a law passed by the state government to preserve some of the heritage structures. And they would just laugh at us and say, well, you know, there, there's only a handful of people who are interested in it, so why should we do it? We're a democracy. So I felt that if I put this everyday culture in an, you know, sort of a... Uh, high, a higher position like a museum, that people would stand up and, and recognize it. And I think that's what's happened. I think uh, there is much more appreciation than uh, th there would be. Not enough to get a law that has teeth, but um, perhaps that will come in the future. So basically, we wanted people to understand and, and appreciate the, the aesthetics that they have. Been a long journey. <laughs> it's it's now <laughs> 2021, but it's it's been a glorious journey, I must say. So from 1984 until 1991, um, we did a lot of work in schools. Did a lot of research on vernacular. I got grants to research vernacular architecture and folk performing arts as well as craft. So that was seven years of research and um, uh, school work, and then we did one festival. So that was a good basis for us to, um, you know, start the museum afterwards. So, how did you choose this name, Dakshin Chitra? I think the the name is a, a little bit of a misnomer now, but Dakshin Chitra was chosen. That name was chosen by uh, R. Nagasami, uh, an archaeologist. But um, no, I had no, I didn't know that I was going to set up a museum. Let's say that it wasn't, you know, I. I the Madras Craft Foundation was set up with one of its goals to set up a museum. And I guess that came about after I was talking to a friend who was an IS officer. And she said, look, if you want to do anything with preservation, the first thing you have to do is start a society. So she helped me to form a society, got an accountant and 
set up the society, and then I brought people in. So once I had a structure, it was easier then. And uh, um, shortly after that, uh, I became the convener for INTAC also, also because of my, my interest in the arts and in textiles. So how did, I, how did I actually do it? I had a lot of fantastic mentors without even realizing how fantastic they were. Uh, <laughs> you know, at first I had a friend who, who told me, she said, uh, you know, you're so highly educated. What are you doing with your education? Not doing anything. Come on, let's do something, you know, you, but do something in the arts. So she introduced me to Dashrat Patel, who was one of the founders of NID, one of the founding faculty of NID, and uh, which is the National Institute of Design, and Chandra Leka, who was a Bharatanatyam dancer. So I spent afternoon after afternoon sitting with these two people. And uh, Dashrat, I would talk about all the possibilities, and Chandra Leka would question me again and again about, about this, how are you going to look at this and that. So I had these two soundboards. And... Uh, I think the other, the third real mentor was um, Martan Singh called Mapu. Mapu was the, he launched the Indian National Trust for Art and Cultural Heritage. And he was terribly supportive and constantly encouraged me. So with all these people encouraging me and with the people I met in INTAC, it was very young at that time. It was also started in 1984. Um, that gave, gave me a lot of confidence that uh, I could do something. And then as I started to work on it, it's sort of all the people who were interested in culture gravitated to it because everybody wanted to also help. And uh, that, was a, that was also fantastic because we had no money and uh, we had the most highly competent volunteers you can imagine. So that, that really made a difference. And uh, I, I, again, the generosity of the city and its, its citizens was quite, quite incredible. So, because it wasn't easy to set up, basically. But uh, the, the kind of volunteers I got, first of all, um, uh, a chartered and cost accountant who retired. And he said in, he said in, in fact, these are all, all the men were retired. So he set in all my accounts and worked with the programmer. And we were digitized by 1991 or 1992, one of the earliest, in fact, People told us that, uh, you know, you, you're, if you look at all the corporations, you still have the most advanced computer, <laughs> computerization in the city. But, but that's because I did work for Univac Sperry Rand, which is now Unisys, for one year before I came to India. So, so I was computer oriented. But, um, even though I'm not technically very competent at all, but, uh, then, then, uh, we had a, a man who had retired because of health reasons as a senior vice president of a multinational. He set in all our admin systems. Um, we had a, when I had just about given up, um, because I couldn't find a contractor to help with any of the work that we were trying to do. I was fundraising one day with a, I went to the president of Larson and Tubro. You must know that as an engineer. It's a big engineering company. I was, I actually went for money. But then I happened to mention to him that we were hunting for an engineer and I was really beside myself. I couldn't find anybody to help me. So he called a, a colleague who had just retired, a very senior engineer. And uh, Mr. Sharma came and worked for us. I'm talking about all volunteers. Um, he worked for us for eight years. And uh, the only thing we did was he gave him a car and driver. I gave my car and my driver because it made a huge difference to have him there. 
And uh, he, you know, he bought all the materials. He hired all the labor. He, I mean, we didn't use contractors. We did it all. And he supervised the whole thing. And he used to say that even though we're a small site, we have all the same problems as a huge site. And the same, you know, you need the same logistics. So I had a lot of, um, you know, help coming from all corners. I sort of, every time I thought I could, you know, couldn't cope anymore, somebody would drop from heaven. And uh, we had also a group of six women volunteers. Three of them have started their own institutions now. So they set up, they helped, they set up the craft shop, the canteen. They, they worked on the exhibitions. They worked on publicity. They worked on bringing in tourism. Um, uh, you know, they, they did all the things which a, a, a nascent organization would need. And uh, um, they were also wonderful. They're, they're still our advisors. Um, and, uh, you know, we're still, we're still all, you know, uh, associated with each other. It was a little difficult when we had full staff because once we opened, we had to um, we had to hire people because no one's going to work six days a week as a volunteer from nine thirty to six thirty, and uh, <laughs> and then um, so so we we worked on how to get that relationship going. And uh, before eighty four and ninety one, um, I had one. Uh, woman called VR Devika. She was the only person who worked with me completely. Um, and she, she was very much into education. And uh, from, I think from about uh, 91 onwards, once we got land, we got the land from the state government in 91. And then we could start. So most people joined after 91. Once we got land, we could get grants. So that's when we started to get money. Because before that, we had no money. We would get small grants to do research, but we didn't get any grants to do anything else. And we've, we've not been funded by the state government. But um, uh, once we had land, then we got our first grant for capital expenditure from the Development Commissioner Handicrafts in New Delhi. And then we could I, we told them we would match it by uh, corporate donations. And we doubled the corporate donations to the, to the grants we got from, from Delhi. So that worked out well. The corporates were happy to give because they knew that for every rupee they gave, they would get another rupee from the government. So we leveraged it that way. In 1991, you almost decide to give up and something happens. Could you tell us what pushed you almost to give up? In, in January, February 91, nothing had worked out. I had no money. I had no land. Um, you know, I felt like all I could do was the schoolwork. There wasn't really much else that I could do. And I could do it with research. But why do research if you're not going to do anything with it? So then my husband had a massive heart attack. He was only 46. And uh, he, while he was in the hospital, and I mean, just before he went in the hospital, I was going to tell him, I mean, I didn't know he was going to have a heart attack. I was going to prepare him for the fact that I thought we should go back to the U.S. because he could teach at the university. And I'm sure I could have found something good to do, probably in museums. But um, he uh, he had this heart attack. And while he was in the hospital, I got the GO for the government land. And the Ford Foundation gave us a grant. Well, he was in the hospital two weeks. So that was a very definitive two weeks. So, I mean, I'd worked on it. I'd worked on it for seven years. And I thought, gosh, you know, uh, it's never going to go anywhere. And then suddenly everything happened. So... Um, Perseverance, I guess, is the name of the game. And uh, <laughs> what to do? So then with the, with the land and the grant, there was I could do a lot. 
I mean, I could hire people. I could, uh, you know, I could really move forward with the vision that I had. And uh, so that was that offset, not not really, but the terrible health experience that my husband had. And of course, that was before they had all the, well, they do all the things now with heart surgery that they did then. They didn't do that then. I see you have a solid team, both in the board of directors and also employees who work for you. How easy was it for you to convince to bring people as uh, board of directors? So, well, when we started, um, we we were only like, well, seven of us had to be on the on the uh, society. And five of us were in Madras. One was Mr. M.V. Subaya, who was the ex-chairman of the Murugapa group. And he was on our board for 20 years. And he kept a really strong control of finance for us. And the other very important person was Dr. Malcolm Adesesha. And Dr. Adesesha had been the director general of UNESCO. And he knew exactly what we were trying to do. And so he was very supportive. He'd been an ex-vice chancellor of Madras University also. And um, I had worked as a volunteer in his organization, which was the Madras Institute of Development Studies. So that's why he came on board, because he knew me from my research I was doing there. And then when he passed away, Dr. Ananda Krishnan, who had been the vice chancellor of um, uh, Anna University, and is very much uh, an educationist, he came on board. And these these people were all wonderful. Then we had... Um, we had a, an industrialist in, in uh, Delhi, Arun Bharatram, um, and uh, he helped us when I had to go to Delhi. But otherwise, when then I had a colleague, um, Gita Ram, who worked very closely with me to set up the museum. And uh, so what I didn't realize then was that the names that I had on the board were so prestigious that the government uh, felt that we had a lot of credibility. So anyone setting up an organization, I would say that your board of directors is very key to your credibility. And you have to have people that everybody respects and, and who are known in the public. Now today, we have switched that. Um, prim- we are primarily arts-oriented. We have some of the finest people in the arts in uh, the country. And uh, uh, that's also good, but we do feel that we should get a little bit back into the business circle and have one or two more uh, directors who, who are in business to link us more with the business world. Because we're, if you're 100% arts-oriented, you're quite removed from the business world. So we need a, a little bit more balance than what we have. But uh, our, our board of directors is very, uh, they're very competent and very active. You know, we, 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 they, they do a lot of work with us. We have a finance committee from the board also, which, which helps us but uh, goes through our finance every month with us. But for these board of directors, uh, how did you attract with the remuneration or do you, do you have to pay something to come on as board of directors? They get nothing. Yeah, they, they, we, don't pay, we don't pay anything. I mean, we pay their transport down from Ahmedabad or wherever they are and we put them up when they're here. But um, I think they're basically motivated by the arts. I mean, I think they, I think they, they bought into the fact that India needs cultural organizations and they need to support these cultural organizations. As I said, there's a lot of collaboration between cultural organizations. They're, everybody knows that you know India has a huge uh, uh, culture. I mean, ancient culture, so so many monuments, so so many problems in the culture that people have to look into and and. Uh, the museums need leadership 
And there, there is, you know, we, we set up this arts management course because there was no, there's only one course, which is in Baroda, on, on museum management. And uh, for a country with, you know, with hundreds of museums, you, you, you don't have any professionals. So, um, uh, you know, that, that was, was very important. So you, you asked also what, um, you know, why I went into museums. When I wanted to start this, this was before 91, I joined the University of Madras to do a PhD in, in art history because I didn't know, I, I knew anthropology, but I, I knew there was a disconnect between anthropology and uh, ancient Indian culture. So I, I then applied to the University of Pennsylvania and to my great delight, they gave me a grant so I, I went for four semesters, one semester a year for four years to the University of Pennsylvania to study art, Indian art history. And then I'd come back and do, and I do research here. And I, and then I went a fifth semester to do a research for my, to, to actually start writing my PhD, which I submitted to the University of Madras. But, um, I needed all that extra education. I needed, you asked me, how did I, you know, how did I get the confidence to do it? Well, I felt that I needed to have extra um, credentials because I was a foreigner. So, and I all, and I, I did it not necessarily for that, it was because I felt I needed to have that extra, that, that extra knowledge basically. And it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> While you were doing your PhD, how did you support your family? I think it would have been very hectic for you. Well, behind every successful woman, I think there's another woman also. And uh, when I went to the US, I had three daughters. So first of all, I had a very supportive husband who felt that I, you know, he was supporting me in everything that I did here. He felt that, you know, I should be, like one time he told me before I started, he said, you have to think big. Don't think of all these small things, do something with a vision. And so he was supporting, supportive even right from the beginning. Uh, I told you he's a PhD in organizational psychology. So very much the psychologist. And he was very much a mentor to me also. So I was very lucky. But um, uh, he, because he was supportive, um, we, we, you know, we both felt that marriage meant that we both had to support the growth of the other person. And then in the U.S., uh, I, I took my two youngest daughters and my parents took care of them. So I would drop them off at my parents' house and then go to Penn and study and then come back to see them on vacation. That's where I said this another woman is always needed. The other woman that's needed, of course, is in, in India, is your cook and your maid. Because I had, I had to do nothing. I mean, if I managed my house, I had no housework. So in the U.S., it's, it's a lot harder. I think in the West, if you don't have help and the woman has to do everything, it is much more difficult. But here, um, even middle class people have, have cooks and maids. And, uh, so, all that burden was taken off of me. And also the stress that that creates in a marriage also was taken off of me. Because if you have somebody else doing it, you don't have any, you have no area of conflict with your husband. You know, he's not doing this. He should be doing that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm sure you're aware of all that. <laughs> because if you're both working, it has to be shared equally, does it not? Absolutely. And so, but in, in, in but in India, um, for many of us, we are very fortunate that uh, that uh, challenge is, is not there for us. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I found it, I didn't find it difficult at all, except that I should say that um, I really 
worked much harder when my I, my two youngest when they went off to boarding school in, in the eleventh and twelfth standard. Then then I was much freer because still I spent I had to hide. You you psychologically have to be with your children, you know. So I always made sure that I was there for my children as well as doing this. That's a long, you know. Once they once they go off to college and just, and away to school, you, there's a lot of free time. You know, you have time that you can really devote yourself. And I think around the world, women usually this happens in their forties. They become much more independent, much freer when they're in their forties and their children are off to school, off to college. Two architects, Laurie Baker and Benny Kuriokos, help realize Dakshin Chitra's vision. Could you talk about the contribution of these architects? Yeah, yeah. Well, Laurie, Laurie Baker, of course, was an expert in vernacular architecture, and he created quite a revolution in architecture in, in Kerala in the 80s. And uh, I went to him first to find out if he could give me a uh, a research assistant, as we were starting doing the, the research on vernacular architecture of Kerala. And so Benny Kuriakos was working with him. He was just fresh out of uh, uh, civil engineering. He was an engineer, actually, Benny is. And uh, so he went with me over a two-year period up and down all around uh, Kerala, uh, documenting the vernacular architecture. In fact, we had a grant like that, a uh, two-year grant for each of the four southern states. And that's how we documented all the architecture. And uh, after after helping me, Benny got a, an intact fellowship to uh, study conservation architecture in, in New York. And uh, then he um, he went on to work. I think it was called Costco, the, the Kerala uh, architecture company, the government company. And then he started his own practice. Uh, he has been very instrumental in designing the public buildings for us. And, uh, and bringing in his teams to help us work. He works with us all the time, even today. And uh, he's been a, he's been a wonderful support to the to the museum. And and as he will admit that he his all his international attention that he that he got and national attention he got through the museum because he's done a wonderful job. And Laurie Baker was absolutely an exceptional person. Once we got the, the, the land, I went to, to Baker and asked if he would design it. He also did it pro bono. I mean, none of these people asked for any money whatsoever. And um, uh, he, you know, he, he's just, he, he was quite an incredible person. He would, he would sit on our site and he could, he could envision 360 degrees of that site. And he basically, he, he uh, outlined the pathways um, he, he looked at the, you know, he put the map of India in his head and said, okay, Kerala's here, Tamil Nadu's here, Karnataka's here, and Andhra's here, and that's how we've laid out the states. And then he separated the public buildings from the historical buildings and looked at how, how the, the movement of people should be. And we followed that, I would say, 75%. And uh, that was an extraordinary help. And um, yeah, he is quite amazing. The only thing in the beginning when we started, he thought anybody could be an architect. And since I couldn't get a contractor, his one goal was to make an architect out of me and a contractor. <laughs> and so, <laughs> oh, no. so I spent a lot of time working away, moaning and groaning, thinking, oh, no, this is not going to work. <laughs> but but he, he, he was really a lovely man. <laughs> So they both Benny and uh, and uh, Laurie Baker has contributed a huge amount 
And when you couple that with my uh, my engineer, Mr. Sharma from Larson and Tubro, they, they really, you know, physically did a lot to bring up the the museum. But that's not such an easy thing. What's your style of leadership? Uh, are you detail oriented or are you more delegate and uh, control kind of person? Uh I think that I, 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 this is the, I feel that a, a good leader should have a vision, but she should be able to delegate. But at the same time, she should monitor. I give a lot of freedom. In fact, I was interviewing someone the other day and they say, but you give much too much freedom to your staff. I'm thinking if I don't give freedom, how will they create? You know, so I, I do give freedom, but we, we, uh, uh, you know, they have targets. They have to have, uh, you know, Many of them have to give a monthly report to see what they've done. It depends, you know. And uh, we, what we do is we have each each department gives their own budget in, in January, February each year for the whole year. We budget for one whole year. And every department has to give their budget of what they think their income and their expenditure will be. And some departments like the library or the conservation, they won't have much income. But... Um, uh, so they they set their parameters, and then they it's their responsibility to reach those parameters, and then we 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 work with that, you know. So so, uh, um, I think I'm detailed with finance because I feel that finance is very key, and I think because I was strict with finance, um, we've managed to survive. Because we have to earn all our own money, we don't get any government grants, and uh, what we get, we have to fundraise, or we are basically self-sustaining from our earned income. But we still have to be much more creative in how we how we earn our income because we'll, you know, we'll have to give better salaries in the future, and uh, um, you know, we we have to do better marketing. We have about two hundred fifty thousand visitors now a year. But we have to bring that up to three hundred to three hundred and fifty thousand. We we really need to get to a three hundred and fifty thousand level within four years or so. Now now because of because of uh, COVID, um, we have only local visitors, and so we have a little less than fifty percent of, of what we normally would have. And uh, so I would say fifty five percent of our visitors are out of the city and out of state. We have only about six percent are foreign. We we've not. Been able to figure out why we're not getting more foreign visitors, but uh, so we're about ninety-four percent Indian, and uh, so um, the fact that we have only local people, that, you know, that, that we know we know that uh, they only we only have forty-five percent local visitors. So, what challenges did you expect back then as an entrepreneur, and did you end up facing those challenges that you predicted? Yeah, well, well, finance was one. Getting the land was a huge. That took seven years, and the last the last year I went every day for one year to the secretariat. You know how tedious that is. Every day, every day for one year, just to the Department of Tourism. Please, please give me land. Please, please give me land. And finally, I think they felt so sorry for me they gave it to me. <laughs> but. Uh, so land was a huge challenge, and uh, if we gotten land earlier, you know, it would have been easier to do what I'm doing now, and it would have cost much less. 
but uh, anyway, we we got that, and um, uh, yeah, basically, you know, the challenges of fundraising, uh, the challenges of getting people, and particularly we're 27 kilometers outside the city, to the south of the city, so. Uh, and, and then they put the toll road in. And when they put the toll road, everyone had to pay another 50 rupees to go out to the Dakshin Chitra because we're just on the other side of the toll. And uh, so all, all these things were challenges. But now now I think we've become a part of the city practically. And uh, I think people feel that uh, Dakshin Chitra is, you know, they a lot of people still don't know it. But those who do know it feel that it's very much a part of the city. And uh, it's a, it's it's where... When you have visitors from out of town, where do you take them? You bring them to Dakshin Chitra. So we have a we have a lot of uh, repeat visitors because of that, and we do a lot we do a lot of school work, school programs. So the school children go back and tell their parents that they want to come again. So our really the word of mouth is coming from children because they they children love Dakshin Chitra, and uh, so they bring their parents back. So that's that's how we've sort of lean the place in the heart of, of uh, Madras. Could you tell us uh, about the staff and how many people work at Dakshin Chitra? Uh, uh, we have a staff of 59 people, but about uh, 30, I think 35 of those would be from around the, the villages around uh, Dakshin Chitra because we have, we have gardeners and we have uh, housekeepers. We need one housekeeper per house. We have 18 historical houses and, uh, um yeah we have yeah the, the staff is there we have a bus which brings the staff from the city every year every day and uh, yeah that's what the staff we have do school children uh, visit a lot to dakshin chitra we uh, we get about, we get about 50000 students a year um about i think 7 or 8000 come with their families and the other 42000 come with with schools one of the problems with school programs in in india is that when a school wants to send their kids on an excursion they don't send like 30 or 40 or 50 they send like 200 so <laughs> then we have we have special workshops for you know for smaller groups of students but uh, the 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 problem is really that they that they send these students on mass and so our our big uh, challenge is how do we give them, how do we, you know, have them learn from Dakshin Chitra when they come. And so we are working with the teachers. Teachers also come and think they're on a holiday. So we try to make the teachers learn what they have to teach with the children. So, and we have, we have a good staff that take the kids around and work with them and ask them questions and all of that. But uh, you asked about students. I told you we have an arts management program and, uh, that's a very, very key part of Dakshin Chitra. It's been going on now for 14 years. And uh, we take 10 students a year. Um, we would even take, a, uh, we've had foreign students from Germany and France. Um, but we give a stipend of 10,000 rupees a month. And they work with us for, for 12 months. They have one and a half days, so three courses um, a week on academics. One is financial planning and budgeting but we have Indian art history, we have um, uh, the anthropology. There's so many different uh, Western art. We have a lot of courses that they take. And then they, then they work for one month in each department so that they learn all the different aspects of what it takes to, to uh, run a, a museum or a cultural institution. 
And it's a year when I think the students um, really, really find out what their interest is in arts. I know you've interviewed uh, Shreya, so she was one of our arts management students. And uh, like that, um, it helps to focus people on what they really want. And uh, it's a very good course, and it's wonderful for us also because we hire from, from our arts management students too. And, and uh, we also help them to, they've all done well in the different cultural areas. Could you tell us about the arts management course at Dakshin Chitra? Do you have plans to conduct some of these courses online? Well, we, this year, of course, we did quite a few of the programs online. One of the problems we face is that, okay, we're good at putting stuff on Instagram and, and Facebook and things like that, but, but you need, we're not great on, you know, working out the technology and, the, and the, how, you, how you really convey the content the best way possible. For so how would how would I convey, uh, okay, education programs? I suppose you could do education programming and programming, but um, uh, it's a it, I don't know. Like it takes us three months to work out a festival, and how many meetings to work out that festival and all the details. So how would you how would you do that online? I mean you can you can you can talk about okay timelines and these are the steps you have to take and this and that. You can do a sort of a, the, the bare skeleton of how you do a festival, but to actually get down and hands-on do it, uh, that's where the learning comes. See, we used to do this arts management course as a completely academic course, where, where for six days in a week they were, they were doing academic studies, except for one project where they had to, to work as a team to bring up an exhibition. But I found that it's so easy for students just to sit and read books, but when you get, get them to go out and do things, when they have to go search in the town and explore and, okay, answer this problem and go find out how do I, how do, I do it, um, that's what they don't like to do. But that's what you have to do when you want to, you know, if you want to succeed in a business or as an entrepreneur. You have to, you know, you have to be able to explore, not just, not just from your desk. So I guess now it's more and more easy to explore from your desk. But let's say if you have to take a arts management course, like a certification and put it online and people do it like a certification, online certification. Those kind of courses we do, ah, we do put those online. We, we, we did have, in fact, we had two, uh, this last year we had six uh, academic courses online and we'll do more this year also. Yeah, because that, that we can do easily, that we know how to do. It's, it's to do, it's, to, yeah, so, yeah, so we can, we can. Do there are all kinds of art courses online. That's not a problem. So we'll we'll let you know. We'll, yeah. Okay. We'll 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 let you know when we have the next the next round of courses. <laughs> probably, pro- probably won't be until September. Let's see, August September. So. You took up this gigantic task of dismantling eighteen traditional houses and moving them to Dakshin Chitra Museum. What were the challenges you encountered? Uh, logistics, skill labor. If I'm correct, you were the first uh, museum to do this in India? Yeah, there's one, there, there are two other museums that have, have, are doing this also or have done it. One is in uh, Manipal in Karnataka, and that is the, they have the architecture of um, uh, Dakshina Kannada and Uttara Kannada. And uh, there's one in uh, the, the Museum of Man in um, Bhopal. It's a, it's a national museum. 
and they have they have because because Bhopal Madhya Pradesh is uh, has 50% of India's tribals. So it started out as a tribal museum with all the tribal habitats. It's quite quite uh, well done actually. So they're the only other two museums that that are at all like ours. But uh, but we're the only one that does so many programs. See our our museum is the only one where where we are constantly having festivals uh we're even doing a transgender day in in April um to get people to understand the the you know that they have to accept and 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 be sensitive to people who are different from themselves so we, we and we do we do a village festival for villagers which is free we do grandparents day we do we've done language festivals we have we have uh nine we have nine festivals every year um where we bring in the folk performing arts and the crafts and uh, sometimes the cuisine sometimes films um to uh, highlight uh you know the, the cultures of that state and all basic, basically the southern states so we are the only one that's that's so uh, uh active all the time but to bring in the houses the hardest part is finding the house because we did this eight years of architectural research and we knew we wanted to have houses which were representative of house types that you'd find in 80 to 100 villages so they're not unique types they're 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 actual architectural prototypes and but we only take houses which are going to be demolished because we didn't want to destroy the fabric of a neighborhood so how to find a house which is going to be demolished which will suit us um we worked if it's a wood wood based house basically we work with timber merchants and uh um Look, I, my my husband's from the Chetiar community, and we have a Chetnad house. Even then, it took me over three and a, over three years, nearly three and a half years, to find a Chetiar house. And uh, um, when I found that house, uh, I just again about given up. And then I was leaving Karikudi, which is part of the trading town of in Chetnad, when I saw a Chetnad door outside the uh, how, uh, office. So I went in and the guy there said, he held up this big key and he said, oh, he said, I've been waiting six months for this key to this Chetnad house and uh, it must be for you. So I bought that house and that man, Mr. Subramaniam, had as a young man worked with my husband's grandfather. And so he had, I immediately had credibility. And so he found three houses for us. And what we normally do in all these, in all these houses is we, we have a, a, a lead stapati which is a the lead carpenter who who actually organizes the houses uh in in for building for traditional building and we bring in people from that area so only the only the masons and the and the the carpenters from that area know how to actually build their houses they do it so differently they don't use they, they don't use uh, precise measurements they don't need line drawings. They know exactly how their traditional houses have to be built. And they just take a string and they go ping, ping, ping with red oxide and take the measurements. So, and they measure from the top down, whereas architects measure from the bottom up. And uh, uh, it only works if you bring in people from the region. So the skills come from that region and uh, the the leader of the of the even if we say if we bring in carpenters from Kerala or something and we're working on an Andhra house, they, those Kerala carpenters have to follow what the Andhra carpenter says. 
So that's that's how we work on it. But it's finding the houses which is so difficult. At the moment, we have found a beautiful Korg house, a 200-year-old Korg house from Karnataka. And we don't have the money to build it because the money that we would, would have had to build it went for paying salaries because we were closed for eight and a half months. So we had no income. So we're trying to raise money to, to buy and build that house. So if you know any, if you know any corgis, let us know. Yeah, we're taking the house down in May and uh, I will, I will give you all information on it. Every little bit, every, every, every little bit would, would help. So that's the, that's one of the challenges. Dakshin Chitra conducts several workshops involving artisans. How do you approach which courses to conduct? Well, if you're working with artisans, the, the best faculty are artisans themselves. And um, uh, I don't know if we've had much success with our artisan workshops, actually. We've, the most success we've had is when we have artisans come in. But like we had the last two years ago, we had, we had or one and a half years ago, we had three workshops. And we were trying to introduce groups of artisans to online marketing how do they how do they market themselves what are the sources of grants that are available to them and um, uh, what is happening in the market today with craft and so we had each we had them there for one week um, you know the the even even to design a business card to design a flyer which advertises what they're doing it's a huge thing for them and uh, you know, I think out of the 20, each group had about 15 to 20 artisans, maybe one or two in each group had, have a, had a business card, but not the others. And uh, so we had them, you know, sort of design a, a, a little flyer and ask them what kind of work would they put. They don't keep they don't keep photos of their work on their phone. You know, so I guess the thing is to try to to bring them up to date so that they so that they are able to really key into the to the to the modern world when they come with their sons some some of them came with children with you know young young men and then it's very easy because they're very receptive and uh, um uh, and and, and other workshops we had um like we did a we wanted to do value addition for for wood carving and so we did a whole we hired an artist to do one year of research on all the different kinds of finishes that, that they could use, which would be economical. And then we had a workshop on it. And then they all said, but we don't want to paint our wood. With that people will think we're cheating, that we have bad wood underneath. But now, then lately, the, the women have been painting, but not, not in a quality. I mean, we, now we should do a quality workshop for the women. But if we want to do any value addition, like glazing or something, the men aren't interested. The men are only interested in doing what they've been doing. But the women are much more adaptable. And I think in the future, women will come much more into craft. They are coming much more into weaving. They are doing some wood carving. Uh, they are doing, like I said, the painting of, of wood. So they, they, are, um, uh, they are being allowed now into a, a man's world. So I think, I think that's a good, uh, um, you know, that's, a good, that's good progress. But I think it's slow. It'll take time. But we use the we use the, the artisans themselves as resource people, even for um, workshops with with adults and with children on 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 their craft, on learning craft, on learning painting. So, but I think if you really want to succeed with workshops with artisans, it has to be a long range project. You can't just have them for a week. You have to have them like over a six month period, maybe two weeks, like. 
to some of the, the more successful organizations, two weeks and then a break of a month and then another two weeks and a break of a month and then another two weeks and a break of a month like that. Um, we haven't ventured into that. We don't have the uh, we don't have the economics to do that, nor the staff to do that at the moment. It was very hard when we started uh, because people didn't know what we were doing. But now, as I said, because of all the work we did with schools and all the children coming in, um, I think 250,000 people is a pretty good uh, record for being so far out of the city. And uh, we still have to improve our marketing and, and reach areas that don't know about Dakshin Chitra. Like we had, uh, we had a particular festival in, in January. And I know just actually the one that Shreya helped organize. And she had a, a meme workshop. And uh, we got a whole different group of people coming who had never been to Dakshin Chitra before. So if we do different types of programs, we, get, we work into different communities. And we're also trying to, to do much more collaboration and let uh, organizations know that, that we are a platform for them also. If they have similar values, uh, we're happy to have their programs at Dakshin Chitra so that uh, we really are a community-based museum. I think that's very important. So yes, I think we're very much a part of, Dakshin, of uh, the city. And when the New York Times, they did this, this uh, I think it was the New York Times, they did this um, uh, whole article on the 50 most creative cities in the world, and Chennai was, was one of them. And uh, uh, one of the features that they mentioned was the Dakshin Chitta Museum. So, so they recognized that it is a, 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 you know, why did it take, it took root in Madras. So it was easy to take root in Madras. Because people, it is a cultural city. Looking back, did you achieve what you said to achieve in the 80s? I think so. I think I achieved much more than I even thought I would achieve. I mean, I you know, when you start something, you really don't know what's going to happen with it. You don't know how it's going to turn out. And uh, I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased how Madras has accepted the museum. And as I said, so many people have helped to make it come up. And I think that's been wonderful. What's the legacy you're leaving and how important is legacy for an organization? Uh, I think the legacy is also the philosophy of the organization. Um, I think the openness to all types of uh, the cultures in the South and uh, to look, you know, more deeply at, at craftspeople and folk performing artists and, and contemporary arts also. What, what, is, what, are the, uh, what is happening in the, in the city and in India today culturally? What are young people interested in? How are they approaching culture? I think this has to all be part of a museum. And I think that has to do with the openness. Um, we, you know, there, there are a lot of people who think if they have knowledge, they have to hide it. They have to keep it to themselves. But our, our philosophy is the more you share, the more you get. So uh, I would say that that legacy is an open legacy. And, and uh, hopefully it will, you know, it'll grow and grow to better heights. So my last question, Deborah, who do you think would be right in leading Dakshin Chitra after your tenure? Do you see an artist or a person with business background? Well, you know, in the U.S. now, because museums are, are fraught with large, you know, they have large economic um, challenges. Uh, they, before they used to take just the person who was a PhD in the arts and had a, had a track record in the arts, but now they want an MBA. 
And a museum is like any other business. The only difference is that we have a mission and we have to work for the, the public good. And that has to be the primary uh, you know, direction of the, of the museum. But other than that, we have to make money. We have to be self-sustaining. We have to pay salaries. We have to do our operations. And we have to have many, many programs for the public. Um, because we are, we are given a, a tax exemption from the government. So we have to, you know, live up to that responsibility. So I, you know, when I look at Dakshin Chitra, the operations and the HR and the admin, that's one big part of Dakshin Chitra. All the programs and the cultural work, the, the museum collections, the library, archives, conservation, education, that's another aspect. And then you have the finance and the marketing. And without the finance and marketing, the other things can't move. So I think whatever I whoever I would choose would have to have, a, they don't necessarily have to have a business background, but they have to be very uh, aware of finance. And sometimes it's very hard. Cultural people would rather not think about finance at all. But um, uh, finance is what keeps the organization going. And so, uh, like, you know, if you, you, you have to have someone who knows that oh, this, is, this is a priority of how you have to spend your money, you know, and, and you, can't, uh, you can't just spend things that you want to spend because you think it's fun to spend, but you have to know what is going to make the institution grow and how do you how do you prioritize that and how do you how do you control that also? So I, I don't know. I think ideally is a ideal is a cultural person who um, uh, has a has a business background, <laughs> has a finance background, or they don't have to be an accountant, accountant, but they have to realize that finance is very important. And uh, we have one we have one trustee. Um, he's a new trustee actually. And he has his own museum, but he was also the, he's also the COO of Indus Bank. So he's been in the banking business for 30 years, yet he, he runs his own uh, uh, museum and archive in, out, of, out of Bombay. So like that, um, we have to see if we can find someone like that we're looking. We're looking at all different kinds of people. And, uh, um, but... Uh, I, it's a very, it's a very troublesome question you asked. I think a lot of it, <laughs> I think a lot of it in a sense will depend on the people that we, that we find. We really, we're looking very in, in, intensively for, for someone. Uh, we have a director of the museum now, the Sharad Nambiar, and, uh, he, he's very good. He actually, unfortunately, had a, a bout with cancer this year, but, um, uh, he can't do it all. So we need, uh, you know, we need other to look at how we are going to, to uh, work on that. Times pass, as I said, whenever I, we were really upset that things weren't working out, someone would drop from heaven. So I don't know if it'll happen. <laughs> I don't know if it'll happen this time. Yeah. I mean, we have to search. <laughs> the other times they just sort of came into my life. So I don't know if I still have that, <laughs> whatever. But I hope that uh, that uh, we do find someone who who will really really take us forward. We, you know, yeah. I think I think luck is part of it. I think you know, I think how you deal with people. Also, though, I'm not I'm not such a people's person, but. Um, 
Uh, you said I, you know, I, I, I do give freedom to people to, to work on their, what they like to do. And I think that's a key thing also. But uh, let's hope, let's hope that things work out well. So that brings us to an end of episode nine of season two, The Resilient Entrepreneurs. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation on Indian Entrepreneur. Do not forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for quick updates. We catch you soon on our next episode where we will be talking to entrepreneurs from Performing Arts Landscape of India. Have a good day.